All right, as we get ready to move into Acts chapter 17, we've been using a, a model, we've been using this image for the last few weeks, and I wanna show it to you on the screen. Many of you have seen this several weeks in a row, but if this is your first time with us, you can find this image, you can find this model actually on an app for your smartphone if you just search three circles or you search life conversations. You can also find some information online. But what it is, it's just a picture of scripture. It's a picture of how God works in our life. It's a, a way that you can draw on a napkin, three circles and three arrows, and at a business lunch, be able to share with someone, this is what scripture is about. This is what it means to be a Christian. Up in the top left, that God has designed us, that he's the one who gives us life. When we move away from God's design, that's called sin. Sin always leads to brokenness. Brokenness in our relationships with God, but also in our relationships with one another. People try to escape brokenness in all kinds of ways, and it just leads them further and further away from God. But when we repent and we believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we're able to be made right with God and live out the life that God has called us to live. So we've been looking at that using Acts chapter 17, and this morning is the last week, and we've moved down to the idea of gospel, that good news of Jesus, and what it means to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. And the point of the sermon this morning is the way that we do that, the way we experience the gospel and we recover God's design for our lives is through the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is how we experience the work of the gospel in our lives and then it leads us to live the lives that God has created us to live. And I want us to see that in Acts chapter 17 this morning. So we're gonna start reading in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, begin reading in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is Mars Hill, which is famous uh, still today, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So in verse 29, 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray as we get started. Fathers, we gather as a church this morning to think about the resurrection, a topic that we often think of at Easter, but something that we need to think of every day of our lives. Father, may you show us in a fresh way this morning what it is to experience the power of the resurrection in our lives and our church. And God, as well as we begin this morning, we pray for our friends at Bethel Baptist down in Norman as this is Matt's first week with them as the new pastor. God, we pray that we would be good partners in the gospel with them. We pray that Matt would stand and proclaim the gospel boldly as he preaches there. And God, that you would do a powerful work in that church. And God, thank you for the way that you work among your people in all places at all times. God, may we be faithful to you in this moment right now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you get here to the end of Paul's speech, and he's been sharing these different ideas, and he comes here to the idea of resurrection, and that becomes the conversation stopper, so to speak. Uh, I've told you before that just by nature, I'm definitely an introvert and, and a pretty, pretty quiet person. Those of us who are introverts and, and consider ourselves pretty quiet people, we have this amazing gift to stop conversations. Um, you know, so there's a group of people who are having a conversation, and you think, this is the moment. I'm going to walk up, and I'm going to join in on that conversation. And so this group of people is having a conversation, and you walk up, and the conversation dies. And you're like, wow, how did I do that? Like, that is the most amazing gift ever, that I could just come up and just kill a conversation like that on, on the spot. You know, when you're a quiet person, sometimes you come off as snobbish and you don't mean to, and, and really it's just you're overwhelmed by this ability, the super amazing ability you have to kill conversation. Uh, it looks like that's what Paul has done in this moment. He's tracking with these people, He's not using Bible verses, he's using their own material, he's meeting them right where they are, are. they're struggling with these idols, he's going to give them this answer, and then he has to bring up the resurrection. And he brings up the resurrection, and it looks like it all dies there. Now, in fact, this is probably what Paul was aiming at all along. He was wanting to get to the topic of the resurrection, and so don't read this sermon, this speech in Acts 17 as a failure. There's a strand of scholarship about Acts chapter 17 that sees what Paul did here in Athens as ultimately a failure, but I don't think Paul would see that. I don't think Luke presents it that way in the New Testament. You don't see it working itself out that way. It's not that he's failed. It's not that he had a good conversation going and then he brought up a topic and killed the conversation. It's just that in this moment, you see the power of the resurrection. We've talked about this before. You can mention God and have a pretty good conversation with someone. You mention Jesus or resurrection and it totally changes the game. You go from this very general vague idea to something very particular and it changes it. 
This whole sermon that Paul's been giving has been about the power of God, the power of God to create, the power of God to judge, and ultimately the power of God to make all things right through the resurrection. In this whole town that's full of all of these idols that have no power, Paul has been showing them God does have power. He created you, he has the power to judge you, and he has the power to make all things right. On the back of your bulletin that you got as you came in, there are four ways in this passage that we see the power of God in the first century with Paul, but ultimately in the 21st century. And what I wanna do this morning is I wanna show you four ways from Acts 17 that we understand the power of God. The first is the resurrection has the power to perplex. The resurrection has the power to perplex. Kids, if you're in here and you don't know the word perplex, you can substitute the word confuse. Uh, it, it, it causes confusion among people. Look back, if you have your Bible or your phone open, look back in chapter 17, up a little bit in verse 18. So back to our Bibles in Acts chapter 17. In verse 18, it says that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul and there in verse 18 it says, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler obviously is not an endearing statement. They don't like what Paul's doing. And then others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We talked before that Paul is almost facing the situation of Socrates at this moment. The same situation that got Socrates in trouble in Athens is looking like it's going to get Paul in trouble in Athens. He's bringing in these what look to be additional gods. When they hear in Athens Paul talking about Jesus and resurrection, they don't think about the resurrection of Jesus. They just hear this as maybe two additional gods. There's the god Jesus and the goddess resurrection. If you read out in the Greek letters the word resurrection here, it looks like the word Anastasia. Anastasia has been a common term, especially in Russia, a name for ladies in, in Russia. Anastasia, the people in Athens, they just heard Anastasia. Oh yeah, Paul's coming. He's going to tell us about two new gods, Jesus and Anastasia. We'll just add those to our list, and they're just two more gods. But you find out that that's not at all what Paul was talking about. The Epicureans, the Epicureans that are mentioned in verse 18, they're perplexed by the resurrection because they really have no concept beyond material things. They think of virtually everything as just material. So the idea that you would die and come back to life makes no sense to them. The Stoics they have a pretty strong idea of the soul or some sort of divine principle, but there's no idea that you would have a renewed bodily life. Why would you want to have a new body? Why would you be given a new body? They don't have any trouble with the idea of a soul, but there's no concept of resurrection that you would die and then the body itself would come back to life. There's a famous uh, play from ancient Greece called Eumenides, and, and in this play, Apollo, the god Apollo, at the location that happens here in Acts 17, at the location of Mars Hill, here's what Apollo says in this play. He says, once a man dies, so this is reflecting Greek thought at the time, once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. You understand why Paul coming and speaking about the resurrection would have been so perplexing, so confusing, because on this very location where Paul is preaching, 
Many years before, there had been this play based at Mars Hill in which the resurrection had been completely denied, and here comes Paul and he talks about it. But it's not only perplexing to the Gentiles, it's also perplexing to the Jewish people. So Paul speaks to Gentile audiences and he also speaks to Jewish audiences, and both of them struggle with the resurrection. In Jewish thought, you had a couple of different strands that would go through Jewish thought. One of the groups in the Jews were the Sadducees. Now, Sadducee was one of the threads or streams of Jewish thought. And the way you remember this, you may have learned this in Sunday school if, when you were growing up, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the concept of resurrection. That's kind of a generalization. We'd want to be aware of some nuances, but generally they didn't believe. So they were sad, you see. Ah, yes, you love that, I know. It's good every time. Like that's the joke, that, that's like the Marco Polo commercial during the Olympics. You could just watch it over and over and over again. Sadducees is the same idea. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. There was another stream of thought in Jewish life that went back to a man named Philo. Philo was combining Jewish thought with Greek thought, and so he had a very clear perception of the soul, but really no strong idea of resurrection. Most Jews, though, most Jews believed in the resurrection, but here's the point. They believed in the resurrection as something that only would happen at the end of time. There would be a general resurrection of all people, but it would be completely at the end of time. There was no real concept of resurrection, a dead person coming to life, breaking in to the current world. And so it was perplexing to them. The resurrection is still perplexing today. You may be here and you say, I have a view of the resurrection. My view is that the resurrection didn't happen. And that's actually a pretty common view. It's so perplexing, it's so strange to us, especially in a scientific, secular age, that many people, their view of the resurrection is simply that it just didn't happen. If that's your view this morning, I hope that what this message will do for you is not try to convince you that the resurrection happened. I don't have a lot of data or proofs to lay out there. I'd love to point you towards some books if you're interested in that. But I think what this morning would do for you from Acts 17 is just to show you if the resurrection did happen, why does it matter? So that, just hear me out. If you're coming and you say, I don't believe in the resurrection, I'm not gonna try to convince you of that this morning, but I would like to say, if the resurrection happened, this is why it matters. But for many people, the idea of resurrection sounds like resuscitation. It's not resuscitation. It's not that Jesus was close to dying and then somehow miraculously came back to life. He really did die. He was completely dead and then came back to life. Resurrection is also not just this general idea of becoming an angel or divine being. I want to be really careful at this point. So hear, hear my pastoral heart and my theology heart at the same time. Many times when people die, uh, we will talk about that person becoming an angel or my little angel. In those moments, as a parent or a grandparent or a friend, you're just trying to survive that moment. So I understand when people talk about someone becoming an angel, that's a way of just trying to understand and cope with, but understand that that also creates confusion about what really happens to a person when they die. We don't become an angel. Matthew, the book of Matthew gives us a pretty clear verse on this. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. It says, for in the resurrection, Jesus is talking about this idea of the resurrection, for in the resurrection, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Not are angels or become angels. They are like angels in heaven. And so we want to understand that when we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about becoming a divine being. We're talking about the work that God does to take someone who has truly died and to make them alive again, that we have a bodily life. There's a famous theologian named N.T. Wright, and he describes the resurrection as life after life after death. Think that through with me for a second. Life after life after death. So we believe that when someone dies, you see with the thief on the cross, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That there is a true way in which we continue to exist after death, but that is not even the resurrection. The resurrection is a future act in which God will make us alive again with real bodies, living in real places for real purposes. And so when you think about the resurrection, we don't even think about the resurrection just as going to heaven when we die. We think about the resurrection when God will make all things new with new heaven and new earth as we have bodies again to live for him as real people. Granted, not the same bodies. And many of us think, thank the Lord for that. Like, maybe I'll get major improvements, you know, at that point. But uh, it's, it's in the future. It's life after life after death. And so we live in a world in which it's perplexing. When we were in New Orleans, we were in a part of town where there was not many churches. There wasn't a lot of understanding of the gospel. And there were some elementary kids who started coming to the church we were at there. And Amanda was teaching this group of kids about the Bible and she taught them about Abraham in the New Testament, and they never heard of Abraham. They thought she was talking about Abraham Lincoln. And then she got to the resurrection, and this little girl gave the greatest response to the resurrection I've ever heard. So Amanda tells them about the resurrection, and the little girl looks at her and says, for real? Yes, for real. That should be your response to the resurrection. You hear that a man died and came back to life, your response should be, for real? That really happened? Yes, it did. And the power of the resurrection is it continues to perplex people, but it also does the second thing on your notes. It also assures us. As confusing as it is, it's also equally assuring. Look down in verse 31, if you still got your phone or Bible in front of you. Verse 31, it says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is God's way of saying what I've said is true and what I've said I will do, I really do have the power to do. It's the assurance of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. In the book of Romans, and these verses will be up on the screen for us, Romans chapter one, talking about the Son of God who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It doesn't mean that when Jesus rose from the dead, he then for the first time became the Son of God. What it means is because the resurrection happened, we can have assurance that Jesus really was the Son of God. And it not only gives us assurance about who Jesus was, but it gives us assurance that he came to be the light for all people, that when you defeat death, you're not just the God of one area, you're the God of all of creation. You're Lord over all things. Acts chapter 26 gives us a picture of that. 
Paul says, I stand here testifying both the small and great that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So get what Jesus' resurrection means here. The Jewish people expected one day that there would be a resurrection of all people. There would be this general resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection in the middle of history, in the middle of time, completely changed their ideas about how God was going to work. That God wasn't just waiting for a future time when he would raise Jews back to life and they would be his people. God had broken into the middle of history. He had broken into the middle of the world so that all people, all people would see the light of who Jesus is and would respond to him. And then finally, the third assurance that Jesus gives is he assures us of the hope of Christian preaching. If anybody at your school, if anybody at your workplace, if anybody in your family ever asks you about the resurrection, the go-to place in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15. It would be worth you making a note in your phone or a note in the front of your Bible that if anyone ever asks you about the resurrection, what's the purpose of it? How do I know that it's really a, a theme? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Let that verse seek in. Just Kids, if you don't know the word vain, it's kind of the word useless or, or pointless is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then it goes on to verse 15. In verse 15 it says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because, he testified, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. That verse means that I stood up here on that stage and I said that Jesus was resurrected. He was raised from the dead and he's alive today. If that's not true, it's not just that I made a small mistake. I have completely misrepresented God to you. And, and trust me that I feel the weight of that at, at this moment. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then it wraps up with these next two verses, verses 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We don't hold on to Christianity because it shows us how to live a better life. We don't live, hold on to Christianity because it makes for a better civil society. We don't hold on to Christianity because it gives us political power. Without the resurrection, without being crude, I should be playing golf right now. That's really the only other way I know. Like This is a total and complete waste of time. It is useless that you believe in Jesus. It's useful that you, useless that you show up to church. It's useless that you would do anything if there's no resurrection. The resurrection is the only assurance we have of Christian preaching. There's no other point to it if Jesus did not die. Because if he did not die for us, then we're still in our sins. If he did not rise again, then we have no hope beyond death. This is our only hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that leads to number three. Number three is that the resurrection has the power to divide. If I would be so audacious and prideful and bigoted to stand up here and say it's all about the resurrection, that's going to be divisive. I, I understand that. That's going to be troubling, and the resurrection has always been that way. Look in verse 32. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 
you get three responses here. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. And then in verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. So it's men and women here. There are three responses to the resurrection. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, and I don't want to hear anything else about it. That's one response. The second response is, you know what? If that's really real, that's probably a very important thing. And I'm not ready to say that I believe it or that I want to follow this guy named Jesus, but I probably need to pay attention to it, and I might want to hear more about that. Or three, I believe it. Which one? Which one are you right now? I'm tired of this. We can't get out of here soon enough. I'm curious about this, but I'm not ready to go all the way with Christianity. Or no, I really do believe that. And I believe that's the foundation of everything my life is about. The resurrection is going to be divisive. And Paul shows this very clearly. Well, actually, Luke shows us because he's following Paul's speech. But Luke shows us very clearly that there were three responses to the resurrection and those three responses still exist today for the people in that third category for those who believed it leads to the fourth point on your notes so the resurrection has the power to perplex it has the power to assure it has the power to divide and then finally it has the power to transform when it says in verse 34 but some men joined him and believed it's not just talking about believing with a mind like, yeah, I believe the resurrection happened a long time ago. It's believing in such a way that it transforms everything that our life is about. That the resurrection says that God has broken into our world, he's broken into our lives, and the new creation, his new creation of making everything right, that has begun. And that changes everything that I do. It changes everything that I'm about. There are two ways that the resurrection transforms us. The first is it transforms what we live for and how we live, and then it transforms our future. So the first one, it transforms what we live for and how we live now. Even though the resurrection is something to happen to us in the future, it's already happened through Jesus, and so we know that we have power over sin, and we know that we have power over death. The New Testament gives us two pictures of the resurrection. The first picture is baptism. And that's why I'm so thankful for Brian and Terry responding to faith in Christ and obedience to Christ through baptism. Because what you see in baptism is not just an act of someone saying, well, I need to do this to be a better person. What they are doing in baptism is they are showing you a biblical picture of the resurrection. That this is our hope. This is what Jesus has done for us. And this is what we gather together as a church to celebrate. That he died for us so that we would be made right with God. And he rose again so that we would have victory in life and death and life after death. That's the picture that the resurrection has in the New Testament. But the other picture of the resurrection in the New Testament is holiness. Holiness. When we understand what it is for Jesus to have defeated sin and defeated death. What we are called to do as Christians is we begin to implement, and I wish I could come up with a better word, but we become to implement, to live out the power of the resurrection in this world. 
when we are saved, and kids, if you're here and you're like elementary age, even up into junior high and high school, hear me out on this part of the sermon. When God saves you, when he makes you right with him and you understand the cross and the resurrection, you're not saved just to wait around the rest of your life until you go to heaven one day. God saves us and we experience the power of the resurrection in our lives so that it changes how you live now. We are called as the church to be resurrection people in the world. The power of God's restoration of all things begins with his church now. It doesn't wait for a future time. Now granted, we live in a world where sin still exists. We live in a world where death still exists, but we are called to be life-infusing people in this world, and we do that as we live holy lives for God's glory. We shine like lights in a dark world. We live as resurrection people. But it also points us toward the future, and this is the last point that shows up on your note there. It points us toward the future. It transforms what we anticipate and how we prepare for it. We anticipate not just going to heaven, but we anticipate how one day, according to Revelation 21 and 22, God will bring a new heaven and a new earth, merged together perfectly, so that the will of God is done on earth just as it is in heaven, and we live with new resurrected bodies in that world. And the way we prepare for that is we celebrate baptism together, we worship together, we live our lives by faith, we care for those who are hurting, we care for God's creation, we proclaim the gospel to a broken and hurting world, and we proclaim life over death, day after day, week after week, year after year. I want you to see a verse that comes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after Paul talks about the resurrection, for all of these chapters, he says, therefore, so therefore, based on the resurrection, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You say to yourself, I really do want to experience the resurrection power of God at work in my life. I want to know what that is. How do I know if I'm experiencing the resurrection power of God in my life? Well, are you steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you steadfast in the assurance that you are right with God through Jesus? Are you immovable so that when suffering comes in your life, when things come in your life that are not expect, expected, you say, you know, you know what? I know where my foundation is, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And are you always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you living out the resurrection in a world that desperately needs that message? Resurrection power isn't about how loudly you yell. It's not how much you jump around. It's not how many t-shirts you have or Facebook posts you make. It's about am I steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? As we come to the end of our time this morning, I'm gonna pray for us, and after I pray, we're gonna sing my favorite resurrection song of all time, Because He Lives. As we sing this song together, if God's at work in your life in a particular way and you need someone to pray for you, you need to respond and say, you know what? I've always kind of pushed the resurrection to the side, but it really does matter, and I need to respond in faith to Jesus. 
Respond now. We want to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to walk alongside you. However God's at work in your life during this time coming up, we want you to be able to respond to that. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you that as Paul was preaching in Athens to a city that was full of idols, to a city that was confused by all the religious ideas around them, that he talked about you as creator, he talked about you as judge, but he also talked about you as the one who has the power of the resurrection. And God, I pray that you would rescue us from any idea of Christianity, any idea of church, that says we just do this to be better people, it doesn't really matter if the resurrection happened. God, remind us in a fresh way this morning that the only reason it does matter is because he lives. That that is the source of our salvation, that is the source of our life every day. God, call us to be resurrection people in the world through the power of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.